welcome back to Hunkering Down with Peter Schorsch. As we discussed in the first couple of podcasts, we were hoping to take a more campaign trail focus with this pod and interview candidates and consultants as we build up to the August and November elections. However, with the increasing coronavirus caseload, we may have to uh, shift back to the hunkering down aspect of hunkering down with Peter Schorsch. Uh, This week, we've got an eclectic pod. Uh, We're going to hit a little bit of the pandemic and talk about the big issue of how we safely and smartly reopen the schools. We're going to hit the campaign trail and talk to a candidate, Michelle Salzman, who I really think you should be paying attention to. It's one of the rare uh, races where a uh, incumbent Republican is being challenged for their House seat. And then we're going to talk about what has been uh, playing nonstop in my house and I'm sure yours as well, which is Hamilton on Disney+. Plus. Uh, we're going to talk about it with uh, a reconnoisseur, a good friend of ours, Richard Reeves. Um, so let's start with that. Uh, a nice little positive note. We taped this just as um, Hamilton was debuting on Disney+. Plus. And so here is lobbyist Richard Reeves. All right, this is a little bit of a treat as we veer off topic from the campaign trail. Um, joining us now is lobbyist Richard Reeves, a, uh, a good friend of mine. Many of you in the process know him. And uh, I, I like to describe him as a kind of a man about town. He's got some very good, sophisticated tastes. He and I love talking about, we really don't talk about politics as much as we talk about travel and food. Um, His family is from, um, I believe, New Orleans. And and so we've always had a good relationship with that. Richard, how are you doing, buddy? I'm great. Uh, It's good to good to talk to you. Um, This is my first podcast. So I'm happy to I'm happy to participate in something that's that's so important and so so culturally important, especially. Um, It's when this uh, when when this all happened, I, I remember um, reading tweets about, well, now's a good time to drop Hamill film and um, dang it if Disney didn't listen. That's why I wanted you to come on was just to, you know, we're on as we're taping this now, we're we're basically 12 hours away from when it starts live streaming. And you're just like, I, don't, I, don't, I guess it's like some sort of bond that we have, like our affinity for Hamilton. And so rather than talk about Senate District 27 or. Uh, COVID, uh, I wanted somebody to come on and talk about Hamilton um, for this week's pod. How, like, so I'm reading the reviews right now, and I'm, I'm so pumped, even more pumped. I'm at like 110% pumped right now because every review is coming back incredibly positive, saying that the filmmakers are, apt, are apt, able to capture the spirit of Hamilton. Why yeah. are you so excited about getting to see Ham film this weekend? Uh, I guess it's because, um, I mean, Hamilton was such a wonderful experience to, to, to be a part of the first time you see it. Uh, it's, it's the music is so wonderful, but you've heard most people see it and they, they know the songs and they know the story. Um, in my case, I had read the book. Um, I did not hear rap lyrics when I read the book, unlike Lin-Manuel. Um, but it's a, um, but when you experience it for the first time, it's, it, it exceeds your expectations or I've yet to run into anyone who says that, that it didn't. Um, 
and it's such a great, it's such a wonderful American story, which is everybody, everybody says, but, and, and they tell it in such a way and the music is so great and it is so diverse. It just makes you feel terrific. And the idea that you can experience that again and again and again um, is, is hopeful. And, and, and so we can, we can't wait. We're not going to, we will not be up at 3 a.m. this morning uh, or tomorrow morning to watch it, but we, I can promise you, we set aside a couple of good bottles of wine and, and, uh, and the 80 inch TV and is going to be, is going to be pumping. So you say it exceeds expectations. And, and to be honest, that's how I felt. Like, I think you saw it much earlier than I did. I saw it, I think a week after Lin-Manuel had done his final performance or like a week, a couple of weeks after that. Um, I believe we still had Leslie Odom, if that's how it worked out. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, to be honest, I had not listened to the music, uh, and and I don't know why I didn't. I knew that this was going to hit my sweet spot because I lo- my favorite album, I guess, my favorite performance is Les Miserables, and I think that there are a lot of parallels between what you know. I mean, you you can hear it in some of the songs what Lynn's picking up from uh, from Les Miserables. Um, but I hadn't heard it. And as I watched it the first time, and I've got funny stories about that, I, I always tell people I wanted to climb up on a ladder and clap from the top of the ladder so that the, the cast and the crew could see me cheering because I was so excited and so overwhelmed. And it did exceed these enormous expectations that I had. Um, I just couldn't believe how how many twists and turns and emotions that you feel within this like three hour block that this, and, and even more so than Les Mis, the, I think the, the tragedy, even though Les Mis is a set, is it overall probably, you know, it's clearly a a sadder story by definition. It is Um, the, the, you know, just the, the, the romantic uh, aspect of it, the humanity of it is just, is just so gripping. Um, and so I left and the first, I kept listening to helpless, which I would have never mm-hmm. thought would have been the song that I would have liked, which is uh, a song by the, the females in the, in the uh, play. And it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a Beyonce knockoff maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just loved it. So that's where I was. When was the first time you saw it? Well, then you, you had me beat, and, and that's actually one of the other reasons I'm excited. I actually never got to see it with the original cast. Okay. I saw it a few, I saw it a few months later. Um, I think the only original cast member was um, the, the lady who, played, who plays um, um, Peggy. Okay. <laughs> um, was, was the only Peggy. one left when I saw it, but, <laughs> but, and, Pe- and Peggy. Um, but... It was it was such a wonder, you know. Like I said, it exceeded my expectations. And the the great thing you just talked about, helpless. And when we first devoured the music, uh, I remember Nicole and Lyle and I were driving back from a conference in um, in Boca, and we just and I had listened, heard some of the songs, and and I, I wanted to get Lyle interested in it. And so I played, you know, I played "You'll Be Back" because he was, you know, he's a twelve year old kid. Yeah. You know who's you know that you know that that's going to kind of appeal to him. Um, and he, and he kind of fell in with it and the, it's amazing. Cause you go through the first act of, of the songs. It's like, wow, this is just amazing. It can't get any better. And I always argue the second act is, is, is better. Um, 
it, it's it's so much more poignant. It's so much more personal. Um, it 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 speaks to everybody's human emotions while also still telling a hopeful story of America. And and I think one of the reasons it exceeds expectations and is so broadly admired is it speaks to whatever your political you know persuasion is. Um, it it it. it it, it is truly the original story of America, which we all believe in, um, and that, that there's hope that anyone can come and build a better future for themselves and for their family, no matter what, you know, whatever their origin, whether they were born here or came from somewhere else, um, that this country was built to give, um, give people a chance, and, and you just have to grab it. And if you grab it, then you're, you're going to have a, a good chance of moving forward in the world. Um, have you... Um... Have you been down to, is it uh, where uh, Nivis, is it St. Nivis where Hamilton's from? Have you ever popped down to there? I did. I did. I, I, um, I, I did make a trip to Nevis. This was well before that. And I remember uh, on the flight down, I was reading kind of um, just kind of, you know, stuff about the island and why it was interesting. At that point, it was interesting because there was a Four Seasons on the island. That's, that's what we were excited about. Um, but, you know, in the, in the, that's why I love you. That's why you're on this podcast right now is because I don't want you to feel any embarrassment or, you know, false humility about dropping a Four Seasons reference on this podcast. If we could sponsor, if it could be sponsored by the Four Seasons, it would be, don't feel, you know, don't, uh, that's not a humble brag. That's awesome. I mean, we, we search for good hotels on this podcast. So go ahead. Exactly. Uh, and the, they've got the best beach on the island, for the record. Um, but the, yeah, that 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 he was born there, um, which is such an interesting kind of little bit of trivia um, that that no one would have known at the time. Obviously, it's a much more widely uh, thing there. And and his is the his house is there. Um, then we we went by and visited, and um, it's a. It, but it's it's not built as a you know at the time when we went, it wasn't built as a shrine to Hamilton. It was just hey, here's here's something kind of cool. Um, but yeah, idea. They don't re even really tell the story at the time, or they didn't tell the story of the hurricane, um, and or at least writing his way off. I mean, they talk about this devastating hurricane, and that uh, he was an orphan essentially, um, who made his way to to New York. But they don't really they don't tell the backstory that the the Chernow book and certainly not the play does. So you bring up the point about the first act and the second act, and maybe the second act being better than the first. I think the I think the first act, we're kind of familiar with the outlines, right? We're 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 mm -hmm. familiar with the Revolutionary War story, which is what you know you basically get there, and then you get to the second part, and it's much more about Hamilton. And like you, I was fascinated. You know, I read the book, and then I wanted wanted to know more. And you know, in a way, Hamilton. One of the parallel or like comparisons I saw was, you know, this was in a way he was. There was this American Caesar moment for him when he was going up against um, John Adams, but he was the most popular general and had the soldiers. And, mm -hmm. you know, there was a moment or two where this country could have turned out very differently had Hamilton not believed in what he had believed in. Um, and that, you know, as, as George Washington's heir, basically, uh, in charge of the military, that he could have you know, going after his rival uh, in a way that would have changed, you know, our structure. Um, and so 
I mean, he despised and, and and there's some even more amazing to think about it in the time at the time that he despised John Adams. And and uh, as you said, um, this authority um, at, a, at a very a country that had never really gone through, a, you know, never gone through a peaceful transition of power. Um, and he was truly uh, a disciple of, of Washington um, and 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 knew that that was. You know, that was not setting up the country for, you know, to follow the Constitution that he had championed. It's uh, it's it's kind of interesting to me also, um, as you know, as we. I guess because he wasn't a president like like my daughter, Ella Joyce, uh, you know, she she wasn't entirely familiar with him in the same way George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or anything like that. And you have to kind of explain who these folks were that were involved in. I'm excited to see where she comes down on it. I want to ask about your family. I don't want you to have to speak for Nicole, but what, I mean, she's such a class act and we love Nicole and, you know, she's always in New York with you. What is she like about this, um, about Hamilton? Well, first off, I would say that uh, to agree with you, Helpless is her favorite song. Um, is it? Okay. And she will play that. <laughs> She'll play that uh, all the time. Uh, I, I, I think Nicole comes at it, I not to speak too much for, less from the, you know, the biography and the, and the history of it, um, and, and more from the joyful music and, uh, and the emotion of the show. Um, we, it, it was been so great to be able to share that with Lyle, um, the history, and then, you know, kind of the music. If there's, a, if there's a, something I, I would highly recommend if anybody's listening that hasn't done it, there's an American experience that was done um, that follows essentially the creation of the of the show from uh, Lin Manuel's first performance at the White House in 2009, yes, um, yeah. where he where he dropped the track um, for the first time, and it's, it's it's two hours, and I don't know if it's probably I think you probably have to buy it on Netflix or whatever, or excuse me on on Amazon, but it is it is su- such a a great wonderful deep dive that it goes into the actors. Talk, the actors all participate in, in kind of what their thoughts were about the show and how they got there and what it means to them. And also, frankly, the challenges of people of color playing folks that were slave owners. Um, they, they, you know, spend time on that. And Christopher Jackson, David Digg, talks about representing George Washington and Thomas Jefferson um, and others that, you know, were gentlemen of their times. But you know, as people of color are having to kind of wrap their arms around that. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful and, and, and great piece. Um, let's talk about the, all right, so the, the, I guess what we're going to be dealing with tomorrow, um, and I'm sure throughout the entire weekend, um, is the experience going to be different? Like you, you mentioned, you're going to have some good bottles of red and uh, I know uh, like- well, No, we're going to start with it. We've got about bottle of, of Realm Sauvignon Blanc that we've been saving for this. Too. We're going to start with that, but uh, just well, for, the re- for the record. That's what you should see. That's what would work on social media is, you know, Richard Reeves' wine pairings for Hamilton. Wines of the Hamilton film, yeah. Yeah, you get to help us, and you might want to spice it up with this uh, beautiful Syrah that has a little <laughs> undertones of heat and uh, courant, um, and you go through it. That would be... Uh, that would we'll be send so out. We'll send out. We'll send out pics as we move along. Um, is he like Michelle's got? I mean, we've got 
and you, I think you can appreciate this. And this is like ultimate bougie with for us, but like, so Tom Colicchio, you know, he put out a note about six weeks ago, you know, when his restaurants were, you know, shuttered and he was like trying to keep open the, uh, the farm to table purveyors that he worked with. And so he's like, here's who I work with. Please order food directly from them. They will now sell you their meat. They'll now sell you their cheese. So we, I, I got meat from Debraga uh, Farms up mm. there. And mm -hmm. we actually, we, this is now our third order from them. We even got some Miyazaki from them, but we're not using that for tomorrow. That's insane. And then like his cheese uh, monger, like I got to tell you, I'm not joking. And I think my belly reflects that I am, I am knowledgeable of good cheese. I'm, there is something so incredible about, I think it's like Chalk Hill or something that, um, so we've got a lot of that in for tomorrow because that's, we would always go to craft for when we're uh, in New York, you know, before we go to see this. And so that's kind of what we're doing tomorrow. Um, do you think the experience, I mean, obviously it's going to be a different experience watching it. You're going to take breaks, et cetera. Um, what is it like for you? What did you, what did you do when you were in New York? What was a typical night? You know, where did you go to eat? Where did you like, you know, when you were going to see a show? Um, well, I mean, a typical night for us is, I mean, a typical trip for us is, is we plan our, our, where we're going to eat first kind of basing kind of tend to base stuff around that. Um, and so in New York is obviously a, just a, a wealth of those kind of uh, those, those options. I mean, on a theater night, um, given the time we, we tend to stay closer, um, to, you know, to the, um, to the district, obviously, just from a, a convenience standpoint. Milos is a, is a favorite of ours. Estatoria Milos is a, is a favorite of ours to do and kind of in advance of that, you know, in, in a rush, we'll do the Palm. Um, but usually we, 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 <laughs> we have a tradition, Nicole just chimed in, Nicole, we have a tradition uh, after every show, the um, Shake Shack uh, down on 28th and uh, for kind of post- post show um goodies it's a it's it's a it's a nice um nice way to end the evening how much are you miss in new york right now uh pretty much i mean it's it's interesting um you get kind of hopeful we were kind of hopeful there for a while when they talk about restaurants beginning to open and certainly their case uh numbers are going down but i guess they're they've now postponed that indefinitely but yeah, New York has always been a, a a summer trip for us, and then a Christmas trip for us, and um, and try to mix in one other there if we can. But usually two times a year, and um, yeah, it's 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 been hard to 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 go through a, a summer knowing we won't be there, and and not even sure if we'll be able to make it in the fall because it's such it's it's it, it is as Gus Corbello would say, the best city in the world. Um, I uh, I'm. I'm... I miss New York probably. I miss New York so much. The idea of New York, when I read, it just crushed me when I heard 11 Madison Park will probably not reopen. And like, which is, is just, it's like saying the Vatican's not going to reopen if you like food. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Um, uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm so distressed still. And I know, I don't know that it'll ever be the same even like it's going to take. So unless we have, you know, on demand vaccine for this, like we have a Tamiflu mm -hmm. or something, it's just, 
it's just not going to be the same. Um, it's so. it, it, the restaurant industry just won't be the same. It's um, I, I would commend a, a podcast, you know, to, 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 to listen to um, is the David Chang podcast. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't, and he spent a lot of time going to have to change um, that it was, you know, that it, it took, you know, this uh, pandemic, not even very long to with during during the time of the pandemic to show just how vulnerable all of the you know the restaurant industry as a whole is and and I had all of them are even the big ones what you know um union square hospitality group you know is going is not opening reopening restaurants chang's group's not reopening restaurants as you mentioned um you know levin madison park is is in danger of not reopening um things that are that are world-renowned hospitality companies and individual and world-renowned hospitality venues um, are, are going to come out of this very different and and what they look like what they're going to look like on the other side or what new things are going to look like are on the other side are, are going to be very different and I can't pretend like I, I know what they are but they're going to have to be much more financially sound um, and and what how they do that is is going to be up for much smarter minds than mine I mean, the thing that kills New York restaurants, as anybody who's worked at them, I mean, I have, is is your rent, is, is your rent. And so it's a matter, can you, you know, how do you change that where, and the only, and because of that, the whole formula is jam as many people into as small a space and then still feel comfortable, which was something having come from like the breezy restaurants of Florida where we'll have 300 seats and indoor outdoor. And then you go into a New York restaurant and it's a 10th of the size of that restaurant. And they're still trying to do 120 seats. Um, I just, I didn't like, I, it, it took a, it took a little bit for me to adjust getting my big hips in and out of the tables. You know, it's like, this is, it's just a different lifestyle. Uh, and I, Again, I think, I mean, like you're saying, I don't know how it comes back. And I, and here's the thing. I don't know that these folks want it to come back like Chang or, you know, Daniel Hum or whomever. It's like, they don't want to serve you, you know, exotic food on, uh, in a cardboard box and for takeout. Like we get what they had to do to survive uh, over the last mm -hmm. couple of months, but that isn't like, that's not how food that's not how great food is supposed to be uh, experienced. And so, yes, I think, I mean, we're not worried about takeout food. There's going to be Outbacks and Carabas for forever and they know how to do it. But the idea of like, you know, I don't like, I've been thinking about it. Like it's been so long since I sat at a sushi bar, like it's been four months, right. Since I've, I got mm -hmm. to go, how do you do that? I mean, those places are always razor close and you're mm -hmm. literally, you know, interacting with a chef who's just sitting there, you know, handing you stuff you know how does that happen you know and so i don't know i don't know how it comes back um but i, I, I think you i mean kind of what i what i've taken away from what i've read and, and listened to is to your point that there's always there'll always be restaurants for consumption for food consumption that sure. be at you know level different varying levels of quality but your experience your experience restaurants are going to be the ones um you know that will be finding, I think, finding new models. Um, and, and what, and I, for example, just here locally, 
you know, we have the, the restaurants have the, the Lusos, the Sage, the Cypresses have been doing kind of to go and things like that, but also provision boxes. The idea that you can pay for the steaks from Eluso, you know, you know, that you're not getting that meat at Publix or, or right. Whole Foods or, you know, but that you can go and, and for less than the amount you pay for it in the restaurant, you can take that steak home and it's going to come with the accoutrements that they cook it with. And, you know, you can do it yourself. That's a new revenue stream that wasn't that restaurants are now going to, I think, going to have to open themselves up to, um, to, you know, to, to create different revenue streams because the one where you put a nice uh, plate of food in front of somebody, I don't think is going to, has shown it's not a very stable model uh, given uncertain economic times. Well, and it's also, and we've now turned this into the, the food blog, but it's also, remember <laughs> they had, the, the fat had been cut away from the bone for a, a while anyways. I mean, the, the 80s expense accounts didn't exist anymore. I mean, it would, I mean, for, it, it was a rarity to find white cloth uh tables anymore i mean it had been you know you had every restaurant basically was going with the um finished wood industrial floor uh, exposed um venting look already which is while some would consider that attractive that's also the the cheapest way to go as well and that was like the trend that was dominating um all right but no, neither here nor there um okay let's get back just we'll wrap this up on some hamilton uh, favorite part of the entire performance? A burn. I think um, it's, while it's not my favorite song, um, although it's, it's a great song, it is, um, it, it really hits you. And I would put uh, second, uh, Dear Theodosia. Same reason, I, I guess I'm just an emotional person. Those, those kind of moments just kind of, they, they always, they always stick out to me. I listened to Dear Theodosia yesterday for the first time in a while in Prague. I hadn't listened <laughs> to it, and I played it, and we were trying to explain to Ella what it was about, and she got it, and it was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, if, you're a parent, if you're a parent, if that doesn't, that doesn't crush you the first, first or 30th time you've heard it, it's, uh, that's something. Favorite character? Oh, um, That's an interesting, I hadn't really thought about that, but it, it has to be Burr. He's, he's the most complicated. He, on, when he's on the stage, he commands the stage. Um, um, yeah, I mean, he, he, he is, it's a, it's, a, it's a story of Burr um, in, in as much as it is of Hamilton, if not more. It's, it is interesting that character, um, you know, Javert gets a lot of screen time or a lot of FaceTime in, in Les Mis, but he's not on there for half the performance and he certainly isn't narrating. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he's there and we, we end up feeling, I don't know, we end up feeling some uh, sadness for the tragedy of Javert and his, you know, his downfall, but nothing like where we feel of like Burr, like where we're just so connected to him and he's narrating and he's comic relief and he's mm -hmm. the rival. Um, it, it, it like a lot of people have said this before. It was so incredibly generous for Lin-Manuel to, to write that for someone else to give that to, you know, I mean, 
it, it, it's Michael Jordan giving Scottie Pippen, you know, all Dunk. of the all of the balls to shoot. Um, so, and by the way, aren't you a Bulls fan? Weren't you? Is it, did I remember that correctly? Was that? No, I was never. I've I've never been a huge um, NBA fan. I, I think it, I kind of bounced around. Depends on the time. I was a, okay. I, 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 There was a time I was a Heat. I was a Heat fan. And uh, despite being from New Orleans, I've never been able to talk myself into the Pelicans. Um, uh, who could? So. Who could? <laughs> Although, I mean, now they've got Zion. Um, all right. Any other final thoughts on uh, maybe what we should look? What tell people that are listening to this? What should they look for? There's so many. You know, you almost wish that you had annotations going, and it's kind of cool. Tomorrow, I think the live, I think the crew is doing a a, a lot like a um, a live tweet at 7 p.m., um, and I'm sure they'll be throwing out some notes and things like that. What's what's a, something that people should really look for as they're watching Hamilton tomorrow? Well, I think kind of back to the to the um, Aaron Berg thing, I, we're, I think Nicole and I are both excited to see Leslie Odom play it for the first time. Um, we, we just missed him. Um, we, we've seen, you know, the, the, the gentleman who's played him, uh, his name escapes me, you know, been for a few years now. We saw him, at, he started in Chicago and, and he's great. And he's now in the New York production. Um, uh, but we're excited about that. But the other, I, I don't skimp on the, on the crew, on the rest, the uh, amount of um, different characters and, and uh, different roles that the, the supporting cast is, at, is asked to play is is amazing and they and they the the choreography and how they interact and they move um you know uh general lee you know yeah. the guy that plays general lee is 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 in and out of stuff and he when he's doing bullets he's the he's one of the stars and he and he it, it's great and then and then if you haven't seen it before make sure you're paying attention to king george because He's on. He's pro- he's probably on there for on the stage for no more than five to seven minutes. But when he's there, you you can't miss him. You it's funny that that is Michelle's favorite part. She loves King George. It is. It's double comic relief. Um, and you're right. It's such a just when you're the idea of doing that, like the idea of creating mm-hmm. that character in that way, and what he does, you know, in the the three different parts are are just it's just so incredibly inventive. I mean, this is, this is a performance filled with, you know, uh, beyond counterintuitive thinking on how to tell a story, including the casting and so forth, but just dropping in the King George as the comic relief um, is just brilliant. All right, Richard, I appreciate you coming on. I'm sure we'll be tweeting at each other all day tomorrow as we're watching it. Um, Best in Nicole and, Lyle and um, you know have a great day watching ham film thanks buddy I appreciate the time look forward to seeing your tweets and your wine (laughs) I think you can tell how excited I am about Hamilton still Um, it was kind of cool Michelle my wife uh, we had a Hamilton party with another family who we trust to have been practicing uh, social distancing and so they came over Michelle had an incredible New York theme spread, um, you know, pizza from New York, uh, Shake Shack burgers. She decorated the entire house. I got her Hamilton flowers. And so um, July 3rd, July 4th, 
was an awesome uh, day. It was, it was a really nice break from the, the heaviness of the pandemic, um, which we're going to shift to now. Um, I really like this next guest's take, even though I don't entirely agree with it. Um, it's Kirsten Borman Doherty, who is familiar to a lot of people in Florida politics as one of the top fundraisers. But she and I had a kind of a back and forth on Twitter and on Facebook about um, the need to safely reopen schools, which I'm one of those people that's like, let's punt it until labor, after Labor Day. Uh, let's make sure they're done before Thanksgiving. Um, full masks on, do whatever you can, hybrid schedule, etc. Um, this kind of runs in the face of what the American Pediatrics um, Academy is telling us, which is that the the benefits of schools being open, especially for disadvantaged children, outweighs the risk for coronavirus. And Kirsten did a very nice job reminding me of that um, of that, and opened my eyes to some of the privilege that we um, we have when we talk about well, we should just not open schools, etc. So here is a really good conversation. It runs a little bit long uh, with Kirsten Borman Doherty and our talk about everything pandemic. <laughs> All right, we're playing with whether or not we're going to look at each other on the Skype channel but right now. But joining me, hunkering down, um, and I guess we're returning to hunkering down more so than we were uh, a month ago, is uh, Kirsten Borman-Doherty. Um, how are you? I am doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. We just got done with a couple of days in the Keys. We kind of uh, sheltered in place down at Hawks K and... Um, you know, we, it's a, it's pretty isolated there. We, we've been doing that. Like we've been trying to find places to still get out and, and, and vacation, um, without seeing people. And so, you know, this was a pretty good thing. So we just got off a couple of days of that. So we're doing pretty good. How about yourself? Is it, how's things going for you? Where are you? Where, tell, tell the audience who you are, what you do. Where are you real quick? Yeah, just the easy, the easy questions when I'm all about the essence of Kirsten. So um, I am currently in Alexandria, Virginia. That's where myself and my husband and our two kids live. I am from Brevard County, Florida, and I lived in Florida for a long time. And I still consider myself a Floridian. Um, I just uh, made the choice about 10 years ago to move to D.C. to, you know, pursue starting my own fundraising company. But prior to that, like I... Um, lived in Tallahassee for a long time, worked in Tallahassee, learned from some of the best and was just totally privileged by my time in Tallahassee and in Florida. And I always stay very tuned in, probably probably to the detriment of any other state that I work in. I stay incredibly tuned in to what's happening in Florida. I love reading what you guys put out. It helps me to read the sunburn um, every morning and kind of see what's going on. So um, but yeah, we're, we are in Alexandria and we're probably similar to you escaping to the grand city of Virginia beach next weekend. So we're really excited about that. Um, which is about a three hour drive from where we are, but I miss Florida. I wish you guys would get your cases down so I could come visit for the primary next month. <laughs> Michelle told me when I told her that I was going to be, uh, chatting with you, I guess you guys knew each other back in the day too, Yeah, uh, which is yeah. cool. So I always, because it always helps me fill in the gaps about the Michelle origin story. <laughs> she's well. She, first of all, she's always been a super a superhero. So that is her origin story. I get um, it, but that doesn't mean that her 
you know, obsessive yeah. husband doesn't like to, I'm like, what? You you talked to a man before you met me? What? <laughs> it was really, we would just like hung out at the nunnery, really. There was, right. um, it, we were just painting each other's nails and braiding hair and there was nothing else going on. Remarkably, Michelle is was the most frequent solo guest to so many weddings. It's remarkable. Yeah. That <laughs> like, like, like her friends will be like, oh, you remember that wedding? That was a real bender. And I'll be like, who? what was this and she's just like oh yeah i was at the solo table it was it was like me and six kids and i was like, yeah right uh, so i always love i love hearing those fun stories um we'll talk about we're going to talk about fundraising but i just want um we're also going to talk about um i just i called you up the other day and i'm doing this right now like i feel like we like we should talk and like, I don't, like, whereas, like, I know people kind of view me as Mr. Pro Mask. I know I was early on on, like, coronavirus, and somehow I've turned into, like, like, the, like somehow people are, there's too many people on the, on the, like, the far right side who just, like, lump me in as, like, some almost, like, pro-coronavirus person. I mean, whether it be Speaker Oliva or other state representatives, they'll, they'll, like, They'll tweet stuff and then they'll like CC me on it as if like I had somehow a, a role in <laughs> coronavirus here. Um, and but in reality, most of the conversations I've had are with people that are they're close to the middle, but they're they're on one side. They are on a definitive side. They have their ideas, but we're all still trying to work it out. And so I've just been calling people and I've been like. You know, like I called, I'm just going to out him right now. Like I called Joe Mobley, who's a lobbyist with the Fiorentino group. And he's got some very divergent opinions from me. And I, I don't want to go into our conversation because that's not fair to him. But I did ask him to, I'm like, hey, just tell me where you're coming from so that, you know, it's not rat-a-tat-tat on Twitter. Because I don't think that that's going to help me understand where you're coming from or maybe to help, you know, me better understand how people are dealing with this. And so... You had some really interesting comments about school reopenings and so forth. You came right at me, um, and I appreciated that. Um, and so I'm going to talk to you about that. But first, I do want to talk to you about your day job, which is fundraising, and especially as it relates to this, a political podcast. How much does it suck to be a political fundraiser right now? <laughs> I mean, it, it is, I feel like we're all in, in many ways doing our best to adapt and, um, and try to mold our businesses and whatever business we're in to the times. Um, I think that uh, fundraisers on the whole, and you know, to, to lump myself in there, we tend to be the most problem solving, adapt, think on our feet type people. That's kind of part of the skill set that you need to have in order to do this job. So um, I think when things started kind of going south, um, you know, we all took a few weeks or a lot of us took a few weeks to realize that, um, you know, things were going a little bit differently than, than we expected. All of our events were being canceled. Things were, you know, starting to, the domino effect of shutdowns was happening and you just have to adapt. Um, I will say I've gotten very good at, at Zoom and hosting Zoom events lately. Um, and just, and to clarify a lot of what I do now, um, this is incredibly boring, but I do uh, pack political action committee fundraising as a majority of what I do since I am based in DC, which is a whole a whole different subset of, fun, of fundraising. I do um, a lot of major donor stuff still in Florida and then also some association fundraising, but most of what I do is based in DC. And um, DC probably more than, than Florida, 
uh, really took to the to the shutdown sort of scenario. They have just recently started, um, you know, allowing indoor dining and, um, you know, and Congress itself was kind of paralyzed for a while. So to answer your question, it is um, we're lucky to still be working and politics is still going. And as you know, politics doesn't stop for many things, but um, is definitely an interesting scenario to adapt and try to work with the situation at hand. Is my theory, this is my theory, um, is it right? Uh, it's that the institutional money is more important than ever before because, especially in down-ballot races, there, you know, the low-dollar donor right now has just been knocked, you know, for a loss here. And that uh, I might actually disagree. I mean, you know, and look, I just have a small perspective on this. I actually disagree with that a little bit. And we'll see okay. when reports when reports come out later this week. I'm I'm very interested to see what what the the July 15th, at least federally, and I don't know what you're seeing statewide, but this this Wednesday is when the report from August 1st through June, or excuse me, April 1st through June 30th will come out. And that's when we're really going to see, because April 1 was when I think everybody started being like, okay, first quarter is yeah. under our belt. What are we doing here? Um, what what I saw is that rather you, you, you had to really adapt from a sort of wide scenario where you're soliciting large amounts of people that you always hit and you had to be much more specific, which meant that myself and my colleagues were calling people individually spending long hours on the phone with them and then talking to them. So some of your major sort of institutional fundraising still worked. But I mean, I will say um, what we saw was that a lot of the online low dollar and, and mail especially actually did really well in the in the second part of the quarter. So um, usually the, the folks who are responding to um, direct mail fundraising are a lot more of your low dollar um, sort of everyday person who says, you know, I really care about this issue and I want to give 20, 50, 10, five dollars to support XYZ candidate. So it'll be I'll be interested to see, but um, especially in Florida where there's a lot of retirees who are on a fixed income um, and they weren't necessarily feeling the pressure of that. And those are a lot of times your your direct mail low dollar giver tends to fall into that bucket. Well, and and undoubtedly the federal level is just a di completely different level than yeah. um, you know, the the wild west of Florida legislative where, you know, you can drop a $25,000 check into a political committee. <laughs> you know, you just, you can't, you know, you got to do it by the hard dollars. And so it's, it's it, really hard for me to get when I went from Tallahassee in, in 2010 and, and working on a statewide um, attorney general's race and kind of going to the new frontier of a congressional race in 2010, when I worked for Dan Webster, when we ran against Alan Grayson, um, <laughs> those rules you just spoke of were, we're a hard pill to swallow, but, um, but, you know, I find that as much as we get called the swamp in DC, I find it to be a little, a little less swampy for those reasons that you just mentioned. Isn't it interesting? Um, I guess, I mean, it's not surprising, but it's interesting that for all of the, I'm going to drain the swamp. It, it is so the opposite of that. And that's not to even criticize it because listen, I feast on the swamp. I'm not making fun of it. I just would have thought, I would have thought there would have just been a little bit of a break in it. And, you know, what it is, is, you know, it has turned out to be the, the only growth business in this country right now is government servicing. I mean, it really is like and it's why I hate to say it, I'm not as I'm not as worried or as hurt as other people because people are still re there's still campaigns. There's still elections. There's still, you know, government is still 
open for business. Um, I don't know how long that lasts if you're not pulling in tax dollars from yeah. people. Um, but it's just and interesting when I read these stories uh, about, you know, the firms that are making money, lobbying for entities so that they can get uh, relief money. Yeah, the coronavirus lobbying and, and, and to that extent, also the coronavirus politics. You know, what we find is that people, as I'm sure you saw in your Facebook and social media feeds, is that um, even though there is a global pandemic that is scaring most people to some degree, there is still a lot to get fired up and passionate about within that, whether it's about um, you know, the stimulus package or what, you know, Nancy Pelosi and her friends are trying to do and, and, and the country that they're trying to lead us to be in the midst of this crisis. I found that that is a very, you know, motivating um, perspective or whether you're angry at Donald Trump because, you know, you feel like he hasn't handled this as well. It's just the, the politics of the pandemic, I think, um, have been very motivating and that will continue to turn even while the rest of real people, you know, real people have very difficult kitchen table conversations. I like how you said Nancy Pelosi and Frank. <laughs> I can't break it. It's just I know. I mean, you're who right, I am. Right there. I mean, that was just, that's fantastic. And, and her friends. Can you believe her friends? <laughs> I yeah. mean, I, She's it's like I've, there. She's got her San Francisco Chardonnay. And, and her ice cream. She uh, eats that super expensive ice cream while the rest of us are just, uh, you yeah. know. Uh, God, that ice cream. <laughs> uh, I, I got to give it to, like, Nancy Pelosi because, um, you know, she, like, God, this is here. You'll just fillet me for this. So I'll just say, if she was a dude, we would be worshiping her for her knife fighting skills. And just her ability to have survived, to have won the speakership twice, to ram through Obamacare, to go toe to toe with a you know a very powerful president. I mean, I'm not even like I don't even follow Pelosi that closely. I mean, it's just not what it's not what I'm focused on. But man, I hope that I'm as tough as nails as she is um, at at 75 or 70, I think she's 77 years old. Oh God, who knows? Yeah. She, she's just tough <laughs> as nails. Uh, it, it, it's, I'm sorry. It's remarkable to me that I, uh, what kind of and I would she is. I would agree with that. I think to be a woman in politics, you have to, you know, you have to endure things that your, your counterpart, male counterparts um, wouldn't. And though I, I don't agree with a single thing she's done, I think she is a, an incredibly effective purveyor of, of the craft that, that we have, you know, and, and she gets her people in line um, up until very recently, especially with remarkable ease. So, um, yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, I just think if she was a man um, to kind of counter that, I'm not sure that she'd be the same person that she is. I think the fact that she's a woman has made her into the calculating um, sort of effective politician that she is. All right, let's, let's switch gears just because this, I don't know why I put these limits on this podcast, but I try to like get everybody in and out inside of like 15 to 20 minutes. Everybody always complains to me, oh, the podcasts are too long. They don't actually say that to me. They say that about other podcasts. And then I find that the podcasts that do go long are always the most listened to. And then other podcasts, which I follow, you know, like Rob Lowe just had Magic Johnson on for two hours. And like, oh, you know, good. you and I are not Magic Johnson or Rob Lowe. No. Can I be Rob Lowe in that? scenario though it's actually an incredible podcast i <laughs> highly 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 recommend to everyone to go listen to it like it's rob Lowe is so he's not like 
I mean, he's super aware of that. The fact that he's Rob Lowe, mm-hmm. he is still very, um, he's not an asshole as much as he is like just very honest without being a dick or mean about the industry. And just like, like, he's just like, yeah, I was really good looking in the eighties and I had just come off the of St. Elmo's fire. So yeah, I was partying a lot in LA and he's not like, you know, he's not disdainful <laughs> or He's just like, can, yeah, can you? And he like, he literally says things like, "Can you imagine me, being me at that point?" And like, you're like, "No, I can't," because Santa Elmo's Fire is so amazing um, as of a movie. So, all right, so I want to I want to switch gears and go to pandemic talk because yeah. focus on the issue du jour, which is, and it's so it's so weird because this whole thing has really been dictated by time, and I feel like. Because of when coronavirus hit, late March, April, May, which is really the the downshifting of of how our you know American clock works, and then we all head for somewhere else on Memorial Day. That it didn't like we, for some reason we didn't real we didn't know what was coming due, and now that we have the fall and the most important issue, wait a second, I don't care about NBA players, I don't care about your bar. I don't care about any of that. Oh, wait a second. Now I've got to send my kid back. Mm-hmm. And now everybody is, all right, wait a second. We got to do something about this whole pandemic thing. It's <laughs> one thing when it, I, I really, I really think it's one thing when it's elderly population locked up in nursing homes that we no longer see versus, you know, six year olds that we're putting on school buses, even though their vulnerabilities are completely different. It is like now you see, I think there's no, I think it's not surprising that we saw the president with the mask on last night, um, that now the shit is hitting the fan, not just because the caseloads are going up um, and it is, you know, we are hitting the second part of the first wave, but it's now our kids. I am of the opinion that, you know, I think we should delay the school opening at least until, at least until after Labor Day. Um, I can, I think that we need to go. Like I disagree with the idea that every school district should have to open. I don't think that Miami-Dade should have to open. I don't think that Broward should have to open. I think Hillsborough could think about doing it. Um, I put out some of these thoughts, and you can't. You had some Twitter. You had. You weren't saying no, but you're like, hey, think about this. And so I want to let you give your point of view on why it's so important that we consider opening the schools, or if not just opening the schools. Yeah, and I and and I understand, you know, from where I am at in Northern Virginia and DC is is different from a caseload perspective, which I think adds some different passion to this because you guys are seeing your cases, you know, rise exponentially. But interestingly enough, we are still having those same discussions here in Northern Virginia, in you know, might I say, some of the the wealthiest and largest school districts in the country too. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a, I think the conversation applies everywhere, maybe not equally, but in a similar fashion. And 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 I apologize, I didn't mean to. Well, no, I don't apologize because I think women apologize too much. I stand by coming at you a little bit in my Enneagram Eight fashion because, um, with a small caveat, not, and not that you were wrong in what you were saying, but I felt like it was sort of a one sided approach to this debate that I'm seeing over and over and over again from people in you and I's situation, which is, um, you know, upper middle class people who have, you know, relatively able children um, that um, also grew up in a, you know, one or two parent household where people cared. Um, I think that what we are looking at is not a conversation of safe versus unsafe. So it is 
unsafe if we send our children to school. Whereas if we keep them home in our, our nice, safe little habitats that we all must surely have at home, they will be safe. And and I don't think that this people are leaving the real narrative out on purpose. I don't think they're doing it um, maliciously. It's just kind of natural that we we assume most most houses are like ours. But so it is not safe versus unsafe. It is unsafe versus unsafe. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have more respect for this conversation if we acknowledged in, hey, I think it'd be a really great idea if we if we we talk about keeping kids home. But we understand that when we do that, we are possibly leaving behind, um, you know, minority, low income, disabled, neglected, abused children. There will be countless children. And we've seen it already, you know, um, domestic violence reports from um, from domestic violence and, and from teachers and from schools are down 75 percent. And it's not because kids aren't still getting beaten. It's because there is no one to see the bruises. So I think it's it's really important that we that we acknowledge, okay, great. So we're gonna talk about going all virtual because that's what the public health officials and the education officials have, have said. And if that's the decision, then okay. But I think in that we need to recognize that the education gap for minority and low-income students will continue to grow. Um, that there are more kids that won't be able to get at least those one or two meals a day that they were getting. Um, and I recognize that a lot of people easily say to me about that, well, these are schools, they're not supposed to be you know, babysitters, they're not supposed to be the the social network. They're not. And, and to that, I say, you know, you're wrong. And I think that this pandemic for me, especially as a conservative Republican, has really opened my eyes to the importance of schools as essentially the mesh that holds and, and the net that holds uh, the, the very basics of our society together. So schools are not just schools. Schools are child care. Schools are wealth, welfare checks. Schools are nutrition. Schools are mental health um, checks. So um, you know, it, it's not to say that you specifically came from a, a place of privilege in that statement, but I just felt everyone who comes from a place of privilege saying the same thing, which is, well, it's just much safer to keep kids home. So let's just keep them home and they'll catch up on schoolwork later. And that just gets me, as you can tell, just a little bit fired up because we're leaving out such an important part of the conversation. And I'm having you talk about this because I'm, I'm pretty much an urban liberal and I don't, I feel comfortable with my, (laughs) um, listen, it's really tough right now. What, no, it's not tough. Uh, strike that. Um, I am struggling with privilege. Yes. And like, but I've, I've been struggling with it for a while. I feel like I'm helping to lead a little bit of that conversation, not because I'm better at it, but because I am in the middle. And so I do like having, some of the people on the left bitch at the people on the right. Nobody hears anybody talk. But if I talk about it, like I do feel like I get some traction maybe with some folks. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, but that maybe they won't listen. Like, you know, my corporate clients who I'm like, eh, you know, let me tell you, I'm like, I don't even know how to say this, but I know you can't say that. And um, I remember having those conversations after me too. Uh, I mean, with a very prominent person that we both know, um, and he was eager to, to get to it. And he just, I'm like, let's go on this journey together. I, and I, that's why I wanted you to come on so that people that are listening to this podcast, um, I thought you were b- better able to articulate your point of view as you should be than I would be able to. I, and I don't disagree with you because, you know, I saw the report from the American Academy of Pediatrics. In fact, 
I think what really has shaped this debate is that report where it's saying, hey, the costs of not sending certain children back to school outweighs even their risk to uh, coronavirus as we know it right now, where the mm -hmm. uh, mortality rate is so um, so infinitesimally small amongst children. If it were to spike up or something like that, then I think they would want to reevaluate it. Now, let me give you the other perspective, which is not the other perspective, but where I'm coming down, even at that, even in, in the knowledge of it, what do I do with that privilege? Like, am mm -hmm. I, I, I'm just not, I'm just not ready to roll the dice. Like, you know, I think Michelle and I will probably homeschool um, because we can. Yeah. Um, are we like, and I worry like, like my whole theory on all this has been, Hey, listen, the re it doesn't matter. And I've said this a dozen times. It doesn't matter if the restaurant's open. It matters if people with disposable income can continue to go to them again and again. Um, mm -hmm. And now it's, I think, the same situation with the schools. It's not. Listen, I think you're going to see schools um, where they're going to be at the only kids that are going to them are going to be disadvantaged kids, which is from all spectrums. Um and I think the kids, I think the people that can afford to are, I think they're going to sit this one out. And I just, I, I fear for how that will cleave this country even further. Let's say if you have an outbreak at PS, you know, mm -hmm. Bronx, but, you know, the private school, nothing happens to them. And we've, we've seen how coronavirus hits uh, Hispanic and black Americans more so than it does white Americans, what happens when it hits Hispanic and black kids more than it does white kids? It's going to be, that but is be a very serious conversation at that point. To answer your question then on how you use your privilege, I feel like, I feel like you just answered your own question, right? Okay. You know, the New, the New York Times did a fantastic, I don't want to say fantastic, I thought it was incredibly political, but the editorial board, I don't know if you saw their editorial two days ago on July 10th, basically saying, we have to open schools except in places where there's a huge outbreak, which I'm sure they would probably put Florida in that. So I'm not taking a victory lap on that editorial, but um, they said that um, what we need is more money. And that, to be honest, like that's where I've kind of had this mental breakdown. I assumed that's where the conversation would always go. I assumed that this was gonna be a teachers unions versus individual states conversations where teachers would say, we don't wanna go back until we have X, Y, Z resources and, um, and creative solutions so that we are safe and that we feel safe and that many, many parents would opt out and keep their children home because they have the resources and the ability to, and then we'd be sending at-risk children or children, I mean, the disability community, I, I feel for them, you know, children with IEPs, whether it's, you know, slight or, or, or moderate or severe, like they are completely hamstrung in this situation because a lot of parents don't have the ability to teach them. They don't have the resources or the training to teach their children at home. So can you um, imagine how, yes. how that like that, and we're talking, and we're even talking with just like children who have uh, the, I don't want to say the easiest level, the- Lightly on the spectrum of autism on the or spectrum. whatever, yeah. Like people that have needs for, you know, speech therapy. Or death, or, yeah. That, like, that's all missing right now. Like mm -hmm. that is just, and it's just like what we, what coronavirus has done to the children. It's no one's fault. Like no, I mean, I think everybody, is trying here. I mean, there's nobody here except, 
you know, conspiracy theorists on, you know, the right, you know, that are, are not trying to do something here. And even or, and just because you had to say that, I have to also go make ahead. a point that, that there are, what has really frustrated me, and, and um, there's a large school district completely adjacent to where we live in Alexandria in Fairfax County Public Schools. And the teachers union, there was a Washington Post article about a month ago, and this is when I started um, I don't know, becoming a little more vocal about it because they essentially say, it, not essentially, it was a quote in the article from the leader of the Fairfax Education Association where she said, we don't believe teachers should be back in the classroom until there's a vaccine. And that to me, what it wasn't, we don't want to feel safe. It wasn't, we need all the PPE. It wasn't, we need FEMA trailers to have five kids in a classroom. It wasn't like the New York Times article or op um, editorial that I just mentioned suggested open air classrooms that because they've been working very well in Sweden and Finland and all these other places. It wasn't, let's think of creative solutions to help the children who need it most. It was, no, we're not going back into the classroom until there's a vaccine, which, you know, we all know that that's not a, a sure, we want to feel optimistic about it. Um, but I think public policy decisions should be made with the assumption that we're not going to have a vaccine, actually. Um, yeah. I, no, so, I think, and I, I've seen that and it is, you're right. The uh, but I will say this: we have. It's going to be another. That will be a very interesting um, way uh, reckoning there when you know you're a week out from schools and the teachers are supposed to start showing back up. And I think you're going to see twenty to thirty percent of them not yeah show up if at best. Like I just like I know. I mean, they're just not especially. And I think that that's legitimate. I think like the idea of like. Hey, I'm a 62 year old, yeah. uh, not in great shape person, and I'm going to go into a room of asymptomatic uh, kids who I won't even know who have it. And you're not going to do uh, temp checks, and we're really not going to get into social distancing. Yeah, I, you know what, your thirty-five thousand dollars a year is just not worth death. And, you know, and that's so. where I and I agree, like, I, I can't even say that if I was in this situation, I, I, you know, I wouldn't be scared myself. I mean, what about people who have an immunocompromised child at home or are they live with an elderly parent? Like, I understand that. But I guess to my point is, then let's use our privilege. Let's use our, our shared collective knowledge of the system to advocate for creative solutions. Right. Like, let's let's talk about extra class. I mean. I honestly, and I, maybe I know absolutely nothing, and it's it's quite possible and probably probable, but why aren't we talking? I mean, after Hurricane Katrina, there were FEMA trailers out the wazoo to make sure that children had a place to be educated. Why aren't we talking about that? Why aren't we talking? I mean, is it because, because we're not we can't get past, uh, Quite honestly, because we haven't got past the first, you know, uh, post, which is wear the damn mask, you know? Like, <laughs> and I, I hate to, like, so... We've, I think the idea that this isn't a pandemic, you know, and that, and, and, and listen, it's going to be, I think there's a legitimate argument. I think you know where I'm at on it, but like the idea that, that our, and we were, did have leadership saying that this was going to melt away, that this was going to go away, the counts were going to be zero. So we had this whole period of denial from late January to March. And I get, and then once it hit March, you know, now we've got this whole March to July period where, you know, the rush to uh, listen, we're in fact, I would say I, I tweeted it today. We have adopted herd immunity, whether we like it or not. Like mm -hmm. it's insane, but that is that is what we've done in Florida. We have adopted herd immunity. We, we have done an excellent job.
protecting the vulnerable, the elderly. We, I mean, DeSantis doesn't get enough credit on that. But the rest of us, I mean, Disney World is open. The bars are open. I mean, I'm sorry. We're not, like, we're not in lockdown mode anymore. Um, and we can't even get people to wear, you know, we can't get more than 60% of the people to wear masks. I mean, it's just crazy. So it's like, how do you get, how do you get, how do you get to talk about like school policy if you can't get people to talk about, you know, whether or not you should wear masks or not? And I, and I, I mean, I will say that watching and being a, a, a native of Florida and a student of Florida politics that has the mass culture war there compared with, let's say the liberal enclave that I live in in Northern Virginia has been, really interesting to me, um, but also the parallels of it, which I think have more to do with a lot of the the spikes and what you're seeing. And I, I hope that at some point we can um, all understand the American psyche in a little bit better of a way to understand what happened to a lot of people at three months of this, where they were just done with it. And I think it is, you know, I don't think that that's a at least in my anecdotal experience, I don't think that's a Republican or Democrat or conservative issue. I think people operate on their own spectrum of how scared they are of this. And then they take personal responsibility for what they want to do. And for whatever reason, um, you know, I think Florida has seen a lot more, a lot more spikiness there. But uh, to counter that, our caseload here in Virginia and in Fairfax County is very small. And we're having the same discussions you are, are in the same sort of stalledness about resources and funding and creative ideas about about schooling, you know, and it it keeps coming back to the same, um, you know, right now, teachers are talking about there's a, a movement to and, and I want to be very clear that I have the utmost respect for teachers. And I don't mean to sound there's a lot of narratives going on that I feel are very anti teacher. And, and that's not where I am. I am just trying to speak a little bit of um, truth as far as what will happen to people who who traditionally don't have a voice, right? And, um, but there's been a movement. No, to, no, no, stick with your original point there. Yeah. So there's, there's a movement among some teachers that, um, and you could, it's all over the internet that it's, it's 14 days, no new cases, essentially, which is that in, and this is, I think the new movement that either NEA is maybe not overtly supporting, but it's coming out and cropping up. And here in Arlington County and Alexandria City is become um, what, to your point, I think a lot of teachers are going to strike and say, we will not report to the classroom until there's 14 days in our jurisdiction of no new cases, which I'm not, you know, I, I think that just ignites the culture war between parents and between essential workers, nurses, doctors, grocery store workers, bus drivers, DMV clerks, um, and teachers and creates more resentment and we'll 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 do exactly the opposite of what we want to do which is to have people understand that we need to invest in education and invest in um, all of these things if god forbid there's ever another pandemic again like you know I personally have come to realize how important schools and resources for schools are in this and I can't I can't imagine I'm the only one. So if we have a culture war where parents are mad at teachers and teachers are striking and kids aren't getting educated and the, the ones who are really losing are, you know, are, are low income and neglected, you know, kids who always fall through the cracks anyway. So that's right. where we use our privilege, Peter. We speak now truth to power. That. I, I wanted you to come on so that I could let you speak to a very privileged audience. <laughs> No, just listening to podcasts. 
is it yeah, for, right? We got time. We, we, we know, got time. We know that the audience that we see the numbers, the people that skew to a podcast tend to be, you know, they tend to be white. Uh, they tend mm-hmm. to be you know, upper educated. And so, you know, I'm glad to have one of their own or, you know, something. You know, in well, my- and, and just to, to interject there, let me just say to my conservative Republican brothers and sisters, we often recoil at the word privilege. And I understand why, because it's become like a, it, I personally, I fully believe it and I understand where I come from, but sometimes that can just be like a, a, a word. So think of it as your blessings and what you've been given too, I think is another way to look at it. And that we're, you know, so blessed in our lives that it's really hard for us to understand um, other perspectives, but um, you know, it's just, it's, it, it, the the groups that will continue to be harmed by lack of school are, are the same groups that always fall behind. All right. Promise um, you'll be back on to uh, maybe you'll come back on real quick and give me some notes on some of the some of the fundraising stories that you see. Yeah, I would love to, especially with the primary coming up in Florida. It's going to be a really interesting year, especially to see how Corona politics affects incumbents and non-incumbent races. We've actually got people, it's like a sleeper because we don't have anything top of the ballot, but like CD3, CD19, <laughs> on the Democratic side. Um, yeah. And then, I think you're going to see some general election stuff that's going to be a little bit more interesting. I think, um, you know, like I think Donna Deegan could give Rutherford uh, a run, even though the numbers aren't there for her in the demographics. Um, you know, but it's, you know, I think. Listen, I saw a poll today where I saw Joe Biden beating Trump outside the margin of error. If that's going on, it just means a lot is in play. And it certainly means a matter, your job is even more important because it's a matter of getting resources to incumbents. like Yeah. And I hope that we fix, you know, whatever polling, you know, with, with, with polling rural, suburban, suburban and rural, not college educated white people, which was essentially where, you know, pollsters fell fell flat in 2016 i hope i hope that we fixed it before 2020 but i don't i don't feel a lot of i say all that to say i don't feel a lot of confidence in whatever poll you just spoke of oh i don't uh, trust me (laughs) i I stayed in my very narrow universe which is unless i know who did the poll yeah believe it and it's like i will say st Pete polls was right in 14 of 16 races look uh, at you and last like so i really do um i do trust our numbers there. And so like I, and, and their numbers are very not conservative, but their numbers, if you look like on the 538 aggregation, mm-hmm. I think that they may have the closest numbers on Biden Trump right now in Florida. So oh. I feel kind of comfortable because we take huge samples. One of the interesting things about polling that's going on right now is everybody is at home and therefore uh, they're answering the phone. And because they haven't talked to anybody in forever, yeah, talking the ear off a of pollster. So it's, I, that's the same reason revenge of polling this year. It's the same reason direct mail is working. That's my theory on direct mail fundraising is that people are actually taking time to, they got nothing else to do. They got nothing else to do. Their mail. Well, mm-hmm. I, I don't like to hear that. I want them to buy digital ads. Um, <laughs> all right, Kirsten Borman, Doherty, so good to hear from you. You take care. Uh, Take care of your loved ones, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Peter. I realize that interview with Kirsten went a little bit long, so I'm going to jump right into our interview with Michelle Salzman, who's running for the Florida House. She is challenging Mike Hill. She is backed by a lot of the power brokers in uh, the panhandle who want to see Hill removed. Uh, He is one of the most controversial members of the House. Uh, He's probably my least favorite 
uh, member not named Anthony Sabatini. So let me jump in. I want you to hear what she has to say. Hopefully you'll click off this interview and contribute to her campaign. Here is Michelle Salzman. She's an hour behind us, but she got up early on this kind of Independence Day weekend to do hunkering down with Peter Schorsch. I'm not going to lie. This is one of my this is one of my favorite candidates this cycle. Michelle Salzman, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm fantastic. Thank you so much. Am I saying your last name correctly? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. Um, so um, tell us about who you are and what you're running for. Uh, you know, the insiders, you know, recognize the name, but you know, let's put a let's put a story with the uh, the name on the website. Sure. Uh, well, I am a regular old gal. I'm, I'm from Pensacola, Florida. My family actually founded this community in the 1800s, so um, you can't get any more from this area than that. I uh, grew up, my, my mom and my dad were, um, they, had, they had some rough starts in life, and so um, I had a little hard time in my childhood, but my stepdad came along and rescued us, and we had a great later part of our life, and I joined the Army at 17 because I didn't think I wanted to go to college yet, and um, everybody else in my family was in the service, so I thought, well, this is what I'll do, and um, the Army was a fantastic experience. I tell you, um, I just loved every bit of it, even the bad. It was great. and moved back to Pensacola after some things and um, have always had a passion for helping others. I think that that came whenever uh, my son, my oldest son is 22, when he was in kindergarten, uh, he was getting in a lot of trouble and the teacher was like, your child is bad and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, my kid is good. It's you. It's your problem. You know, <laughs> the typical parent response. And so um, she said, well, you come in here and you spend a day. So I spent a day with my son in there and I realized it was my son. You know, he had a, I had a, big learning disability and we you know the teacher and I worked through it I became the room parent blah 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 but while I was in there I'm um, advocating for my son when my when just having memories that my mom couldn't do that for me when I was a child I, I was always left to figure it out on my own um, I, I saw so many other kids that didn't have that advocate and I thought well if I can just hang around a little bit longer maybe I can help this other kid and so that kind of started my journey of public service and um, I mean, fast forward 20 years later, I've just been a community leader in Pensacola area, serving a lot of nonprofit boards and um, simultaneously up to 15 at a time. And it's a full time thing. It was all I was doing. I run a small business out of my home, so um, it doesn't take a lot of effort to do that. But um, I say all that to say I just saw a lot of gaps in um just, just efficiency. There, there was a lot of operational gaps and needs in the different services, um, mostly education and veteran stuff and, and small business stuff because that's kind of where I fall. But I just saw those gaps and then I just kept asking questions. Well, why is it like this? Why is it like that? And, you know, after being a, a community leader for some time, I just said, you know what? I think we need to fix this. And, um, of course, it fell into the lap of state legislation and just started kind of following that. And I realized that I think we can do better. So fast forward a year later, I'm right here and I am a viable candidate for this position. I can't tell you how exciting it, it has been um, in the journey that I've been on, but I'm very grateful for every day. Well, that's a great story. I, um, I, I, I would be remiss if we didn't mention you are you're challenging an incumbent Republican. Uh, Mike Hill over there. Um, 
I don't think we're going to waste much time talking about Mike Hill here. Um, I think everybody knows where I stand on him, but I, I think it's important to note that you got a lot of big name community leaders backing you. Like I've seen the host committee and mm-hmm. you know, I'm not from that neck of the woods, but I know those names. And so who, I, one of the questions we ask on our questionnaire is, who was the first person to contribute to your campaign, but who are some of those folks that are, are backing you that, you know, people throughout the rest of the state might know? Sure. Well, um, I'll tell you the reason why um, I have such incredible people backing me is because I've been serving on community boards with them for almost 20 years. You know, you've got the Lewis bear, bell bear, you know, the whole bear family. Um, of course, you have Frank White served on some stuff with him and his wife, Stephanie, uh, the Public School Foundation Board. And, um, well, gosh, uh, of course, Don Gates, Matt, you know, Matt's dad. Um, and I, I don't know. I've, I've just got I've got a lot of folks, David Peden, um, Jim Reeves. I mean, I, I think if you name a, a solid, good, true conservative, um, you, you'll find that they're a, a good friend of mine or they're officially helping the campaign. There are a lot of folks um, in the background that, that have to stay very uh, neutral publicly because this is a very controversial thing to do, you know, yeah. challenging an incumbent. It is is you know not really the best thing to, to choose to do but I tell folks I'm not doing this because I thought I'd win I've never been in politics I don't even know I don't know politics I'm learning every day um, but what I know is we need change we need effective representation in Tallahassee somebody that's going to bridge gaps and not create um, you know not cut the bridges down and so um, how do we do that? We get somebody, hopefully, like me in office. And um, so that's really what we've been just trying to do, either in the background or in the foreground. Um, I've had a lot of meetings with a lot of folks that I can't mention uh, because, you know, we're just trying to keep, keep it nice and vanilla as far as that's concerned. But um, I think if you'd call just about any um, solid Republican um, organization, they would tell you that that I'm a great candidate. And that's that's part of the reason why we've been doing so well here. You know, we haven't spent hardly any money, but we're polling like we polled whenever the previous person ran against him and she spent 300 or $250,000 by now. And I've spent 40, you know, it's, it's really a matter of um, how you run the campaign, I think. But um, we're working hard every day. And uh, I tell you that there are some really good folks out here. Isn't it interesting? You mentioned, um, you know, it's it, there is a learning curve on being a first-time candidate. Even for folks like yourself, you've been in the community, you you know everybody that's ran for office. You probably helped out on a lot of campaigns, but until your name is you know on the yard sign, it's different. And I tell that, you know, when I used to do more political consulting, I, uh, you know, I'd be one of the things you have to tell kind of first-time candidates is. Nobody cares about you. And I hate to say it that way, but it's just like you think everybody knows you because when you go down to uh, the Neighborhood Association or whatever, they don't even know who the the U.S. senator is. So they certainly don't know what state house is or anything like that. So are you running into any of that on 
on, on the first yes, I'll tell you, I, I just had a conversation with a, a, a Blaine with Flynn a huge builder here. And um, we were chatting about that. He said that a friend of his said, you should back Michelle about a year and a half ago. And he said, he laughed at him. He said, I just, he said, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to offend you, Michelle, but I just laughed at him and said, there's no way she will ever come close to that man. If she doesn't have a chance and, and he kind of let it go. And um, I told him, I laughed too. And I said, listen, I already knew that, you know, my, my very good friend, Quint Studer, um, uh, did did some things with some friends and you know trying to figure out the viability of my candidacy and he worked with some folks and and I'll tell you I polled at eight percent in August of last year I mean eight percent I know I, I you don't have to tell me you're sorry that you that people don't gonna know me I already know that you know I I have really smart friends and and I trust them and and they told me Michelle you're not gonna poll well and you're probably not gonna win this thing and I said you know what that's okay we're gonna keep moving forward and they said well if you're willing to put your name out there and take it because this is one of the nastiest people he will fight so dirty we are gonna stand 100% behind you and do everything we can to help make sure that you make it to victory and so when I talked to that man yesterday, he said, I cannot believe what you have been able to accomplish from the time that I heard your name the first time. He said, you're going to win this thing. You really seriously are going to win this thing. And I, I kind of laughed it off. I said, I'm just going to keep running like I'm 20 points behind and we're just going to respect the process. And I'm going to give it I'm going to do the best I can for these folks. And, you know, at the end of the day, we I know for a fact that I will have made a difference, even if I don't make it in the seat. But. I, I'm pretty certain at this point we're going to do, uh, we might not just win, we might win by a long shot, but not trying to jinx anything. So. <laughs> oh boy, she, she wants to cover the spread. Um, <laughs> I was just up in your neck of the woods on an RV trip. We went and did, uh, we were coming back down and we did, um, we did Perdido Key, we did Destin, uh, then we went into Pensacola. What's your What's your district like? I mean, give folks a sense of, you know, there, there's people that are going to be writing checks to you from Miami, and I think they forget that it's closer, you're closer to Nashville than you are Miami. I mean, you're closer to <laughs> that part of the world than you are, you know, other parts of Florida, yet they're going to be engaged. What's your district like? Um, well, I can tell you that the district itself, the actual people and the geographical um, uh, makeup is a nice variety of um, urban and rural and, you know, just youth and a lot of college students because we do have a couple of colleges here, UWF um, and Pensacola State College. And then, of course, we have a lot of farmers in the agriculture community, and um, we have manufacturing. We have we have a the voter makeup is that's a totally different conversation. You know, unfortunately, the truth is that a majority of the people that go vote are retired, you know, go to church a couple of times a week and they just kind of, you know, they do family stuff, but they're not really engaging in the infrastructure and the, and the um, community needs that a majority of the citizens do engage in. So that's been, that's been a very interesting conversation to have because they're like, well, how did, you know, your incumbent get elected in the first place and you know, who in the, and I said, you know what, 
it's about who goes and votes. And um, I'll tell you, the beginning part of my campaigning was not necessarily campaigning for Michelle Salzman. It was really campaigning to make an awareness because a lot of people were like, how in the world did he get elected? He's so divisive. And, and, I, and so I, had to, I went to high schools and to SGA meetings, and I talked to the kids that will be voting or should be voting. I would go to different organizations, the colleges, and I would talk to the college kids. And, and I just kind of try to activate the, um, the Republican and Democrat youth, just the youth in general and said, listen, you wonder why you have infrastructure issues. You wonder why you can't get down a major highway without sitting there for 30 minutes. You wonder why your educational system is lacking certain things that you think are important. It's because you're not voting. You aren't getting out there and you aren't making your voice heard. So the only people that are voting are the folks that have nothing to do with half of the stuff that we're funding. So you guys have to get out and make that change. So that's a conversation that I've had a lot with, with people. Um, I just I feel like if we could get everybody out there to actually vote, then we would have people in place that do really represent the cause. I mean, I'm a uber conservative. You know, a lot of folks say, gosh, you and Mike's uh, views, they align a lot. And why would you run against them? And, I, you know, there's a t we are night and day. We are not the same. You know, one conservative does not make the other conservative. You know, just like one liberal doesn't mean the other liberal is the same. Um, so it's it's you got to look beyond that. You have to look into what's really going on with that candidate. You know, that brings up a a, a good point. Like, so I, you know, the I don't want to say this the wrong way. Again, I'm trying to avoid criticizing Hill too much. But all right, so it's easy for moderate Republicans like me down in St. Petersburg, kind of a progressive city. You know, we look at Mike Hill and we just you know we run. Pensacola is a different part of the world. You know, I would, again, just being over there, you know, th there's a reason why that Trump flotilla was so successful a couple, three weeks ago. Um, mm -hmm. Does he, does he turn folks off? I mean, or is it, um, is there a local issue that's in play here maybe that, you know, divides? I mean, it, it's, I, I, I wonder, I wonder if, you know, do the, People that vote in a Republican primary in your House district, are they as turned off as we are, the rest of the state, when we hear some of the crazy things that come out of out of his mouth? I'd say about 50-50. Okay. You know, like I said, I have some great friends, and, and I've, I've seen some very extensive polls, um, and I know what the concerns are in the community. Um, they just want – the ones that vote – Okay, the super voters. Yeah, they they those people, those specific people want a true Christian representing them in Tallahassee. You can okay. just say, but if you say that, it covers everything, and um, which is part of the reason why I was very um, vocal about my Christianity during the beginning of this race. Not because I think you need to scream I'm a Christian to be a Christian, because I really don't. Um, I think your actions should show your heart, and that should impress upon others and lead them where they should go. You know what I mean? But in this instance, I put it on my, I put um, a scripture on my yard sign. I put a scripture on my palm card. I did all these things, and I was very vocal. Um, and that's only because uh, last campaign, uh, my opponent did some things that said that, my, you know, the lady that lost last time was not a Christian. She'd kill babies. And, you know, and so we just have to make sure that we minimize opposition. So, but 
they just want a solid Christian. You know, they're, they're, they want somebody that has those core values of our, um, of our Northwest Florida area. And believe it or not, even the ones that don't vote, that's how they feel too. Um, but it's, it's so much bigger than that. And that's why I started knocking doors in August of last year. Cause, and it was only me. Um, we're only seven weeks to primary. So I can, I guess, start telling my secrets. Cause I can promise you, I have been extremely strategic in every move. I am not polling where I'm at because of luck. Um, it has been, every move has been very calculated, but, um, I started knocking in August and I just really was engaging in the folks. I was the only one that knocked doors. I have not had one person except for me knock a door. I've had drivers. I've got great, I've got a team of 80 volunteers and I can't even make that up. It's just, it's so incredibly humbling, but, um, I'm knocking doors and I'm talking to those folks and they, when you talk to them one by one and they see that you really are, um, that true Christian conservative that they're looking for, then they can start talking to you about what the issues really are. You know, they want to check that box before they check anything else. So once you make it past that point, then they want to know, okay, now what are we really going to do for the community? Okay, so infrastructure, education, safety, things like that. So, um, but one by one, I've hit, um, by this week, it'll be 10,000 doors. Even, you know, I was ahead of the game before the pandemic and uh, that's, <laughs> That's okay, because I am still, I, I have my uh, consultants, uh, Mark Zubilee's little plan in, in place, and we are right on time. We're not missing. Matter of fact, I'm probably ahead of schedule even with the pandemic, um, but nobody will work harder than me, and, and I think that, that all of my friends knew that whenever I said I was going to take this challenge on, but, um, but that was a long answer to the question, but I think that it, it deserves a little bit more than a few words. I mean, overall, we just want a conservative Christian in office. You know, look at Clay Ingram. What a nice guy. You know, he was my neighbor for almost 20 years. He's a good guy, um, super supportive. Uh, he He's not like my opponent. Uh, <laughs> and he well, was very loved. <laughs> that's, uh, and again, there's a, there's a difference to the type of candidates that win in South Florida. There's a different type of candidates. You know, in Tampa Bay, we got a bunch of folks. They probably would be viewed as Democrats um, if you ran them in. Um, around, you know, Northwest Florida. Um, I didn't, I will say, I did not, and I maybe I was on the wrong road, but I didn't see a lot of Mike Hill signs out there as I was dragging that RV around, you know, and we were in the rural parts of, of Northwest Florida. This isn't like we're down in, uh, in downtown Pensacola. Um, yes. All right, so seven weeks to go. Let's close this out. What is the, give us a little taste of what does it look like and because you, you alluded to it, Mike Hill got really nasty in the last election. I mean, he really, there's nothing that's, he will not stop uh, from pulling the trigger on something really nasty. I'm not saying you were going to have to fire back, but what does the last uh, six weeks of this campaign look like? Well, for me, like I said, I'm just out knocking doors every day, and we do have a plan in place. We just sent out a four-page, very large newsletter to every single Republican voter in Escambia County that really just tells my story. It puts all of my, uh, what he would consider flaws um, in there. I come right out and say all of my history, you know, my mom's opioid addiction, my dad's, you know, alcoholism. Uh, the things I had to do when I was homeless with my two kids, all of those things are in that news from the very beginning. I just, I believe 
Um, the one thing that you end up with at, at the end of your life is your integrity. Nobody can take that away. And so um, when I'm the one that puts all of that out there, it's hard for him to put it out there as if it's news because it's not news. You know, um, you can use my past as a punchline, but I use it as a stepping stone to grow and develop and, and be able to relate more with how we can make this world a better place and keep other people from having to experience the things that I experienced. Um, so we, we are just approaching it and, and we're very strategic I'll tell you without telling the strategy uh, we're doing very well um, everything everything is in place the way it should be and we are slowly activating resources uh, we just got our endorsements from the firefighters union and the police benevolent association and um, got the a rating from the NRA I don't know if you guys got that email um, but Marion did some uh, things yesterday which was uh, hilarious to me but yeah, it's uh, it's um, it's yeah. But those are that's, that's what he does. The NRA is backing you over Mike Hill. They are not. They are not endorsing me yet. I don't want to say anything else about that. You got but, an angry. Um, I got. Oh yeah, and okay. they sent an email. The NRA sent an email out yesterday saying they will never endorse him. Okay. Uh, to all, all of the Escambia counter voters, it's uh, uh, it was an intense email, but it, it it was it came from something he was doing. You know, remember we talked about those tactics that that happen, and he was doing some things that were um, less than honest here locally recently, oh, and um, from what I hear, and so uh, they wanted to make sure that their name was not used in a way that that it wasn't supposed to be. So they sent that from what i hear you know i i did see the email so um i'm gonna get off the uh we're gonna wrap up this pod i'm gonna call zubilee now um i work for mark <laughs> um she was one of my first bosses in politics and you know mark is from this neck of the woods and we always catch up and um i need to get that email from him and and and, and get the word out um you know you florida pilot we actually have a pretty good following up in in pensacola and all that area just because We've always targeted it there, um, our Facebook advertising and promoting there. So um, I got to tell you, we wish you the best of luck. Uh, we're going to check in with you as much as possible over the next six weeks. I, I don't say this often, but let us know if we can do anything to help. Um, I know that that probably violates some sort of journalistic integrity, but when you got to, I mean, I love your story, you know, as somebody who, you know, has made his own mistakes and built on it. I, I love that about you. I love that you're upfront about it. I think that's the, I think that's the best way. I wish people, I wish people didn't like uh, try and chuck and jive about their about their past. When so, a lot of us have had issues, you know, you get a DUI or a divorce or a DUI and a divorce, and you know, it's like nobody's perfect out there. I mean, that's one of the tenets of Christianity. And so, I just I've, I've yes. loved the story. I think it, you're not just running against my kill. I think you've got a great story. And I'm, uh, I'm glad we got to talk today. So promise that you'll stay in touch and we will Absolutely. see you on the campaign trail. I'll see you in Tallahassee. Yeah, like that. <laughs> All right, you take care. Bye. All right, I told you uh, Michelle is a hell of a candidate. I think she's got a great personal narrative. She is running against a member of the Florida House who simply does not belong there, does not belong in public life. Um, I'm pulling for an upset there. I hope you will consider contributing to her campaign. Thank you to her. Thank you to Richard Reeves. Thank you to Kirsten Borman-Doherty for coming on the pod this week. Um, I'm going to see if I can close with a little clip from 
uh, Hamilton. I don't know what the rights are on something like that. I don't even know if they will notice. Um, it is available on Disney+. Plus. Please follow me at Peter Schorsch, S-C-H-O-R-S-C-H-F-L on Twitter. And, of course, our website is FloridaPolitics.com. Thank you for hunkering down with me. Alexander was on Washington's doorstep one day in distress and disarray. Alexander said, I have nowhere else to turn. And basically begged me to join the fray. I approached Madison and said, I know you hate him, but let's hear what he has to say. Well, I arranged the meeting. I arranged the menu, the venue, the seating. But no one else was in the room where it happened.